I just want to express my appreciation again to Greg and Audra uh, for just being so faithful and consistent in leading us uh, week in and week out. Yeah, that's appropriate. Um, very appropriate. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but um, Greg is trying to do sound and lead in singing. And so when Danny's praying, Greg's back and forth, <laughs> making sure everything's okay. He's trying to click through the slides as he's leading us in singing. So he's juggling 50 things and just doing a great job. So very much appreciate him uh, and Audra as well. Uh, there's, you know, obviously this COVID thing has impacted the ministry here uh, in a lot of ways. And I mean, all of our lives in a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, children's ministry and music ministry have really disproportionately been affected by this, um, just from the standpoint of people serving in both of those ministries. Um, it, you know, it's hard to get people to serve in children's right now. And so uh, we've had to reduce the number of classes and all of that. And then uh, music ministry is just uh, just a challenge at this point. So I do appreciate Audra and Greg um, and others as well. But those two in particular have really stepped up and uh, just faithfully led us. And we benefit from their uh, service every single Sunday. Um, so encourage them and thank them if you uh, bump into them after the service. Um, you can open your Bible up to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. In the late spring of 1940, a little over 80 years ago, Nazi troops were quickly moving across Western Europe and taking countries left and right. In May of 1940, in one month, the Nazis... Uh, invaded and successfully defeated three countries in one month, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Belgium. And after taking those countries, they turned their attention south and west to France, and it appeared at the time that nothing could stop them. They quickly pushed a British uh, expeditionary force and a, a group of French soldiers back to the northern coast of France and pinned them down surrounded them in a town called Dunkirk on the coast, about 20 or 30 miles from, uh, from Britain across the English Channel. And it's at that town, Dunkirk, which I'm sure is a familiar name to you, that one of the greatest rescue operations in all of human history took place. Uh, Adolf Hitler feared an Allied counterattack as he pinned the troops down thought that they would in desperation try to, try to attack back, and so he paused to consolidate his soldiers and didn't immediately attack Dunkirk. Well, that pause gave the Allied troops the opportunity to plan and execute a rescue operation, which was an evacuation across the English Channel from Dunkirk to Britain. As they're planning this, the problem was that the water around Dunkirk is so shallow that you can't bring in large ships, warships, and transport ships to load troops up onto those ships. And so they put out a call for any seaworthy vessel to make the, tri the trip across the English Channel over to France and to try to rescue the soldiers who were pinned down there. And as they put that call out, over a thousand vessels of all shapes and sizes and purposes, from pleasure cruise ships to fishing boats, some of them captained by civilians, made the trip across the English Channel to Dunkirk. 
And they're in the midst of a, of a firefight from uh, German planes swooping down and trying to take these ships out. But those thousand ships ferried troops from the shore out to the larger ships. And in total, 338,000 soldiers were evacuated over a period of several days. There's a movie made about this a couple years ago, just an amazing rescue operation. And of course, the rescue operation itself is significant and shocking that it would take place on that largest scale. But the aftermath of the rescue operation is what's really important. You see, if this wouldn't have happened and if they wouldn't have gotten these troops out, there's a real strong possibility that England would not have been been able to hold up against Germany for the long haul. And so in many ways, this was a turning point and a a significant moment for the Allied forces to be able to defend themselves in Britain against Germany. So it's hard not to love a good rescue story, right? I mean, that's why we make movies about these moments. And if you go on to Google and search rescue story, you'll find all sorts of things from a little girl being saved out of a well to something the size of Dunkirk and 338,000 soldiers being rescued in that moment. And what we're going to look at beginning today in the book of Exodus is the greatest Old Testament paradigm and example of a rescue story. I mean, Israel, millions of people, Israel's redemption of millions of people from slavery in Egypt, out of Egypt, their rescue is amazing on so many levels. But it's important as we think about that rescue and that moment in time when they're freed from Egypt to consider the reason for that rescue and the aftermath that comes because they were redeemed from Egypt. You see, when we think about the book of Exodus, we think about the Red Sea and we think about the plagues and we think about their rescue, but Exodus is 40 chapters long and the Red Sea, the finale, the, the, the final uh, phase of their rescue where Egypt is caught in the Red Sea and Israel makes it through to the other side, that happens in Exodus 14. And so there's quite a bit of the book that is left after their redemption. So what happens for the rest of the book? And the point of this is that Israel was rescued for a particular reason. It wasn't just about them being redeemed. The point is they were rescued for a purpose, and you can see that purpose On the screen here. The title of our series is that they were rescued to know him. While you're looking at that screen, let me just say thank you to Katie Shipman. She always does a fantastic job putting these slides together and designing them uh, for you to enjoy and to follow along. So very much appreciate her and the work that she does. But the reason that they were rescued, as we'll find out later today, is that they were rescued in order to know God and to dwell in his presence as his people. Everything that happens in this book, all of it happens in order for God to make himself known to Israel, but then to make himself known to the Egyptians and ultimately for the knowledge of him to reverberate out to all the nations of the earth. That's why they are redeemed. And as we go through this book and walk through it, you're going to see God's character put on display. You're going to see his faithfulness. You're going to see his glory. You're going to see his love, his mercy. You're going to see his wrath and his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. And so 
my promise to you is that if you will walk through this book with us over the next few months, if you will go to this book on your own and do the reading and and work through it and understand what's happening and follow along, my promise to you is you will encounter God and you will know him better because that's the whole reason that this book is there. It's for Moses and for Israel to encounter God through their redemption and through his revelation of himself. And for us, those of us who are reading it thousands of years later, to encounter that same God. And so my expectation and my promise is you will know God in a more profound way after studying the book of Exodus. So I want to prepare you for that study this morning by introducing you to this book. And here's what we're going to look at. Three essentials. In in verses 1 to 7, three essentials to prepare us to encounter God, the holy creator God of the universe, a redeeming God in the book of Exodus. Three essentials to prepare us to encounter God in Exodus. And the first one of these is story. Now, when I say story, I'm not talking about the story of the book of Exodus from chapter 1 to chapter 40. We will get to that in a moment. But when I say story, what I'm talking about is specifically how this book fits into the larger story of the Bible. Exodus is not a standalone work. It fits into the rest of Scripture. I mean, we sometimes, I think, treat it like a standalone work because there are so many individual stories in this book that are just fantastic. They make for great artwork. They make for great children's book stories. Just think about all of the key moments in scripture that come in the book of Exodus. Baby Moses gets found in a basket by Pharaoh's daughter. What a great story. And she takes him and he ends up being raised in the palace in Egypt as one of Pharaoh's sons. The burning bush story is in Exodus chapter 3. Moses' rod turns to a serpent. The ten plagues happen in Exodus 7 through 11. The Passover story happens with the blood of the Passover lamb being smeared on the doorpost so that the children of Egypt or the children of Israel are not destroyed by the angel of death. The Red Sea story happens in the book of Exodus. God comes and guides Israel as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. There's complaining in the wilderness in Exodus 16, 17, and 18. The giving of the Ten Commandments is in this book. The golden calf incident, we'll call it, is in Exodus 32. And in Exodus, you have the building of the tabernacle. I mean, so much happens in this book. And I think sometimes our tendency is to read these stories individually. I mean, they're great stories on their own. But our tendency is to read them individually and in an isolation and not see how they all fit into the larger story of the books of Moses, the Torah, and of of Scripture. And so I want you to, to start this morning by looking at the very first verse in this book. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now, you cannot see this in English, which is unfortunate, but the first word in the book of Exodus in Hebrew is the word and. What a silly word to begin a book with, right? Why would you start your, your book with the word and? The reason Moses did that is because he wants us to understand from the get-go that this is a continuation. Something happened and now this is all going to happen. 
In fact, those first few words of this book, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. If you will flip back to Genesis verse, or chapter 46, just a couple of pages, you will see those same words in Genesis 46 and verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, right? The same six words that begin the book of Exodus were given to us in Genesis 46. And so what Moses is indicating by this, the the author of this book is Moses, is this story that he's going to tell in Exodus is advancing the story that began in the book of Genesis. Now, I want you to notice the names that he goes into in verses 2 to 6, the back in Exodus chapter 1. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And if you were to jump into this book and just start reading with no knowledge, no prior knowledge of the book of Genesis, you would think, who are these people? Okay, I see these 12 names. They're the sons of Jacob, but who is this Joseph guy? And why is it so significant that this Joseph guy died in Egypt? As a matter of fact, how did these people end up in Egypt? Why is that important? Well, verse 7 begins to shed light on that question by taking us even further back in Scripture. Let me read verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Let me ask you, the language in verse 7, what does that remind you of? Have you heard that language in, in Genesis before? Well, if you're paying attention in the book of Genesis, you found that language almost right off the bat. Genesis chapter 1, where God is describing the creation of mankind in his image, and then he's commissioning these human beings to accomplish a task for him. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in this passage in Genesis chapter one, God had originally given this commission to Adam and Eve. He gave them a, a task, a goal to accomplish. And ultimately he gave this task to their descendants, to all of humanity that would come from Adam and Eve. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, but this task doesn't go away. It just becomes that much more difficult to accomplish. And so this task was passed in the story of Genesis from Adam and Eve to Noah, and then it was given specificity in Abraham. And God said, I'm going to promise you some specific things, Abraham. I'm going to promise you that you, from your line, will become a great, the descendants of your line will become a great nation. And I'm going to plant those people, that nation, in a land. And then through those people, that nation, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth, all through your descendants. And so God gives Abraham that commission in Genesis 12 as a way of setting right what went wrong in Genesis 3 and as fulfilling this original commission in Genesis 1. And then the rest of the book of Genesis tracks that promise. And so you go from Abraham to Isaac 
to Jacob. And then you've got Jacob's 12 sons who are given to us here in Exodus chapter 1. And of course, at the end of the book of Genesis, you've got the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt and ultimately the whole family ends up in Egypt. And so what Moses is doing in verse 7 is he's picking up this language of Genesis chapter 1 and he's saying that God is still seeking to fulfill this original purpose for creation. And he's going to do that through this group of people, through the descendants of Abraham, whom God promised would become a nation, would be planted in his land, and would bless all the nations of the earth. And Moses is picking up that language and using it here, saying, this is starting to happen. This work is starting to be done. His people are being fruitful and they're they're multiplying. And so as you see that commission being starting to happen, we want to ask the question, how does Exodus actually advance this story? And how does it advance this commission that God has given back in Genesis 1 through Abraham and now to the nation of Israel? That's the second part of our introduction. Three essentials to prepare us to encounter God. We have the story. How does this fit? It does fit. It continues the story of Genesis and God's promises to Abraham, his original commission. And the way this moves forward in Genesis is going to be put on display for us through the structure of the book. When Moses wrote this book, he was not haphazard about it. He didn't just slap a bunch of stories down in a random order. He wrote this book in an intentional way so that we could follow the story of it and draw lessons and see the promises of God move forward through it. And so think back to that promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that Israel would be a great nation. Well, that's starting to happen now. In fact, that is happening. But what else did he promise Abraham? That they would be given a land. Well, here in verse 7, they're not in the right land. It says at the end of the, of the verse that the land was filled with them. The only problem is it's not the right land. It's not the land that God had promised them. In fact, it's the land of Egypt. And as you'll see next time, if you were to look ahead to, to verse 8 and get into the rest of chapter 1, the fact that God's people are in the wrong land and that they're multiplying like this creates great suffering and persecution for them. Pharaoh does not like it at all. We'll look at that more next time. So in order for God to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to Israel and to use them for his glory so that his name will bless the nations, he's got to bring them out of this land and plant them in a different land. He's got to rescue them from slavery. And that's the first part of this book, the part that we're all mostly familiar with. Rescue happens in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus 18. So God calls Moses at the burning bush, sets him up as the deliverer of Israel, and then he rescues his people through the ten plagues. And then after he does that, as Israel is leaving, God destroys Egypt at the Red Sea and brings Israel safely through the Red Sea. And so he redeems them out of slavery in Egypt He brings them out. There's a short journey in the wilderness. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he brings them to Mount Sinai to officially establish them as a nation 
and to make a covenant with them. And that's the next part of this book. And so they are rescued in order to establish a covenant with them. This covenant is in chapters 19 through 24. Now I want you to, to flip over to Exodus 19. I want to show you this on the front and the back end of these of this section. Exodus 19. So rescued to establish a covenant. And you can see God explain this to them in verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Same mountain where he saw the burning bush, by the way. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Look what God tells them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God tells them, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And as I do this, it is for your good. And it is to bless you. And it is to define you as a unique and a special people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests for me. Then he lays out what this looks like in chapters 20 through 24. In chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments, the ten words that God gives them. And then in chapters 21 to 24, you sort of have like case law, where the, there's application to daily life of the Ten Commandments. And so God is giving them specifics on how they should live. And he's saying to them, if you will be my special people, if you will represent me as a kingdom of priests, then you have to live ethically according to my holiness. It will shape your life to be my special people. And so this covenant relationship is established and the law is given not for Israel to earn salvation, Not so they can have a covenant relationship, but the law is given as a guide to them to help them live in God's presence and to live out their their representation of him. Now flip over to Exodus 24 and you'll, you'll see the sealing of this covenant. Exodus 24. We'll start in verse 3. So all of these laws are given, the case law, the Ten Commandments, all of this, and then Chapter 24 and verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This covenant is established and ratified through the shedding of blood, a sacrifice, and it is established. And now, once they are officially in covenant relationship with God, now he's going to describe how he can come to dwell in their midst. How can a holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? And that's the rest of the book, chapters 25 to 40. Now, what makes Israel unique? They are, we call them God's chosen people, his special people, right? Chosen from all the other nations of the earth. But what makes them unique is that God dwells in their midst. They have God's presence with them. And so the question is, how can this happen? How can a holy and righteous God dwell and live amongst a sinful and rebellious people? And how can this happen without him consuming them in his holiness? The answer is found in this section of the book. Here you will find the plans and the construction of the tabernacle and the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. And the priesthood is established to mediate between God and his covenant people. Now, of course, this whole idea of God dwelling among his people, this takes us back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 as well. I mean, what what happened in the garden is that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve. They were designed, they were created to have fellowship in a relationship with God. That was their ultimate good and their ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. They were made for that. And of course, that was lost with the fall in Genesis 3. They were exiled from his presence. And so in many ways, the construction of this tabernacle is the beginning of putting all of that back together. And of God saying, here's my people, I'm going to live in their midst. And here's how this can happen. Now, what's so amazing about this, if you're you're doing your through the Bible in a year plan, I don't know if you're to the book of Exodus yet or not, but this, this trips people up as they read through it because you have the, the description of the building of the tabernacle given twice in these chapters. Chapters 25 to 31 describe the instructions for building the tabernacle. And then Moses circles back around and in chapters 35 to 40, he describes actually building the tabernacle. And so it's like, Moses, like what's the deal here, man? Like we... We got it the first time, like all this description, and now you're just going back and saying, okay, and they actually did it, and here's all the details of how they did it. And so as you're reading through this, it can be challenging to see all of the space given to the building of the tabernacle. But that tells us how significant it is, and you have to keep in mind that there's a section in the middle of the instructions and the actual building that is so important. Chapters 32 to 34 come right in the middle of these two sections. And what happens in chapters 32 to 34 is vital for our understanding of this book. You see in chapter 32, you have the golden calf incident. And so here in chapter 24, Israel is proclaiming, we will obey. We want to follow all of these words. And then Moses goes up on the mountain and in chapter 32, immediately... You have Israel violating this covenant and breaking the commands and building this golden calf 
and proclaiming that this is the God who brought them out of Egypt. And right after that happens, you have Moses and his pleading with God on their behalf, and then you have God's revelation of his character to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And so what this section squashed in the middle of the tabernacle instructions tells us is it tells us about the character of God, that this is a God who is holy, yes, but he is also forgiving and gracious and kind, and he has steadfast love to his covenant people. And so even though Israel violates this covenant, when there is atonement made for this through blood sacrifice, when there is mediation made on their behalf, then God, in his grace, actually comes to dwell among them, and they do build the tabernacle at the end of the book. And the entire book finishes with God's glory coming and filling the tabernacle that they have built. God's presence coming to dwell among them is an amazing gift of grace. And so, as you're reading the book of Exodus, these are the three major sections. And I don't think you can really grasp what's going on if you don't know how the book fits and how it flows together. So, big picture, I would kind of describe it this way. Exodus is a book that describes geographically Israel's movement from Egypt to Sinai. And there's a short journey in the wilderness in chapters 16 through 18. So Egypt to Sinai. But beyond that geographical movement, the the book of Exodus is the people of Israel coming out of slavery to Pharaoh into service to God. And so overall, this book is a book that shows us the movement from slavery to redemption to worship and being God's covenant people. Slavery to redemption to covenantal worship of God. Here's how one author described this. The general contours of the book of Exodus are erected around this movement from slavery to the concluding picture of worship. The transition from slavery to worship is accomplished through a very great redemption, which is at the center of the book. Basic to all of Israel's later theology is the redemption of the Exodus. In many ways, you really can't grasp the nation of Israel or the rest of the Old Testament unless you get a handle on this movement from slavery to redemption to worship of the Lord. This is it. Now, once we, we get this structure and what's happening in the book, now we're in a position to say, okay, how can we summarize this thing? 40 chapters is an awful lot. How do we bring it all together? I mean, there's a lot of good stories in this. What brings all of these sections and all of these stories from the burning bush to the ten plagues to the golden calf to God's glory coming into the tabernacle? What brings all of this together? What's the driving force of this book? What is Moses trying to accomplish as he writes this? I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. And I think... God himself tells us what the purpose of this book and of all of his actions and his words in this book are meant to do for us as readers. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. God is speaking to Moses here. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So here's what I think is happening in this book. Here's how I would summarize the message of this book. God rescues his people in order to make a covenant with them so that they can know him. So that they can be in a relationship with him. So they can know his character. So they can delight in his presence and who he is. But it doesn't terminate with Israel, right? They're not the end goal. God wants them to know him so that then as they know him and they live for him and as they represent him, the knowledge of him will reverberate out to the Egyptians and to the end of the earth. It's so that All the nations will know this God, this redeeming God, that they will be blessed through the knowledge of him. Another author put it like this, from start to finish, Exodus explores how Yahweh takes the initiative in order that the Israelites and others may know him more fully. The Exodus story is a multifaceted diamond that witnesses to God's compassion Faithfulness, glory, holiness, justice, majesty, mercy, and power. I mean, think about it. Why did God appear to Moses at the burning bush? To reveal himself to Moses. Moses says, what shall, who shall I tell them sent, sent me? I am sent you. God is revealing who he is so that Moses can know him and then convey that to the Israelites. And when Moses and Aaron show up at Pharaoh's palace and say, Yahweh God demands that you let his people go, what is Pharaoh, what is his first response to them? But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. But then as the plagues start to come and you get to the seventh plague, what does God say? For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's like, listen, I mean, these 10 plagues, I don't have to do these 10 plagues. Come on, I could just snap my finger and you guys are done for. But why? Why is he doing the 10 plagues? It's so that they'll know him, so that they'll experience who he is, and they'll know that the Egyptian gods are not gods at all, but Yahweh God is the true God. And he says here, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does the Red Sea take place? Exodus 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They did so. And the Egyptians shall know later in this chapter that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
How do the Ten Commandments begin? Exodus 20 and verse 2. God defines who he is. I am the Lord, your God, the redeeming God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They ought to know him as not just the sovereign I am, but as the one who redeems them, their redeemer. And their response to that is to obey these commands. What does Moses ask of God when he's up on the mountain after the golden calf incident? He wants to know, how are you going to respond? Who are you? What are you like? Please show me your glory. And then what does God do? He reveals himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses' response is to quickly bow his head toward the earth and worship. Over and over again in this book, God acts, God speaks. He does all of it in order to make his name known, to make his glory known so that they will know him and worship him. He rescues Israel in order to bring them into a covenant relationship with him so that he can dwell in their midst and they can know and experience his presence and his glory. And so every section of this book, every story in this book is an encounter with a holy and a redeeming God. Now, this book's amazing. I love it. It's a delight to study and a delight to read, and it reveals an unbelievable presentation of God's character to us. But while that is true, one only has to turn to the New Testament and begin to understand that this first exodus, what God does here, is only a shadow. It's only a type pointing forward to the new exodus, the final exodus that will be accomplished through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in this book, all the stories, all the pictures, all the people, all the examples, everything points ahead and draws our attention to God's ultimate work of rescuing people who then are meant to know him. John chapter 1 puts it like this. And the word became flesh and, in English it says dwelt among us, but the word actually means tabernacled among us. He came and his presence was among us. And what is the result of that? And we have seen his glory. The full array of God's character has been put on display as the redeeming, holy, just, righteous, and loving God of the universe. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so while this book of Exodus will reveal God to us as he is, it will always point us ahead to God's greatest revelation, which is found in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we study this book, we're going to try to make those connections from Exodus to the work of Christ. Some of them are quite easy. He's the Passover lamb. His blood saves us from certain death, you know, all of that. Others will be a little more difficult. 
but I think this book will be a delight to study and a delight to read. And I'm confident if you will give yourself to the scriptures and search them, that you will encounter God and who he is through this study. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you would reveal yourself to us. We do not deserve to know you. We do not deserve to catch a glimpse of your glory. And yet, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have put your glory on full display. And so I pray that our study of this book of Exodus and what happened to Israel would draw our attention to who you are, that we would understand that we too have been rescued to know you, and then to live in a covenant relationship with you and to spread knowledge of you throughout the entire world through our words and through our actions. And so we thank you for our time together this morning and we thank you for, for who you are, for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.